0: Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson.
1: And I'm David Common.
0: And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services.
1: Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast.
0: CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is a CBC Podcast.
3: Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall.
4: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition.
3: Tonight, driving their home point home, an advocate reacts to the federal fiscal update after pushing the government to improve access to affordable housing.
4: Harm's way. A doctor describes the increasingly desperate scenes inside one of the few hospitals in Gaza that's still operational as patients stream in from hospitals that have come under fire.
3: Not cleared for takeoff, an opposition politician in Newfoundland and Labrador says a plan to subsidize cheaper flights from St. John's to Europe won't fly with his constituents.
4: Keep clam and carry on. Most people don't want to eat shipworms, but a team of British researchers wants to rename the gross-looking bivalves naked clams, on the assumption that afterwards we will all be eating their words.
3: They messed with the bullion, but they're not getting the horns. We still have no idea how thieves managed to steal tens of millions in gold bars and cash from Toronto's Pearson Airport, or where all of that treasure is. The latest salvo in the legal battle to lay blame shows certain parties find it hard to take that it was all so easy to take.
4: And greet expectations. In northern Sweden, the days are darkening and isolation is increasing. So one city is urging residents to take desperate measures by saying hey to each other. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that welcomes them to "Hi society. This afternoon, Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Chrystia Freeland rose in the House of Commons to deliver her fall economic statement. In recent days, there were signals that housing would be one of the focus areas. Here's some of what she said today about that.
0: We are
5: unlocking billions of dollars in new financing, money that will go towards supporting the construction of new homes for Canadians. We are supporting non-profit, co-op, and public housing providers. We We will be helping to cut the red tape that prevents construction workers from moving across the country to build homes, and we will be bringing more of the skilled trades workers that our construction sector needs to Canada.
4: Ray Sullivan is the executive director of the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association. In the lead up to today's fall economic statement, the organization was pushing the federal government to improve access to affordable housing. We reached Mr. Sullivan in Vancouver.
3: Ray, that's just a bit of what Chris Freeland said today. But overall, did you hear what you wanted to hear from her?
1: yeah we certainly heard a step in the right direction of what we're looking for and there's a there's a significant commitment in there, a one billion dollar new fund in grants to help build more community housing and more money fifteen billion dollars for loans to build rentals and that's good. We need more rental supply but but honestly, you know what we need right now is the right kind of supply. Asking rents in the private market have gone up more than 20% in the last year alone. You know, and in, in the past week, I've heard three different stories of people with jobs living in tents in three different cities in the country. So what we need is is affordable supply, you know, the non-market, nonprofit, and co-op housing supply.
3: Do you think, though, that the changes, some of the other changes they're, they're bringing in, you know, tax restrictions on short-term rentals, the money we've already discussed giving government land you know leaving that open to construction building new housing will all in time ease those kinds of concerns that that people are dealing with right now
1: yeah and we're hearing that there's more measures coming beyond the fall economic statement and 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 that's good you know small things like labor strategy and and skilled trades for for construction canada infrastructure bank being able to look at funding infrastructure related the housing this is part of what we're calling you know a team canada approach with federal leadership to pull together provinces municipalities the private industry researchers and the nonprofit sector like ourselves to really tackle what is a really big problem and it's going to take a couple of years to get ourselves out of this mess you know one of the things that we didn't see in the fall economic statement that we hope to still see is a federal strategy specifically for acquisition of existing rental market properties by nonprofits and, and co-ops.
3: Tell me more what, what, what that would look like and what that would involve.
1: Well, research is showing us that for every one home created under National Housing Strategy Programs, we're actually losing 11 homes at affordable rents in, in the private market. So, you know, we're trying to fill the bucket with more affordable housing, but there's a big hole at the bottom of the bucket. None of the current national housing strategy programs include anything around acquisition. So helping nonprofits and co-ops to buy existing apartment buildings that are on the private market. And we know when those sell that a new owner is probably going to drastically rise those rents. So how do we protect and stabilize those tenancies? How do we stabilize and keep those rents reasonably affordable? We move them into, into community housing.
3: When we talk about w- what is on offer in today's announcement, It's not going to come in until 2025, 2026. How much of an impact will that delay have when there's the urgency that you're describing and people living in tents?
1: Yeah, and this is the urgency of the problem. And in fact, the the federal housing advocate came out with a report just a couple of weeks ago saying that there's a gap of 4.4 million homes affordable to to low-income households in the country. So the, the need is absolutely huge. And this is where we need to work on both of those tracks. So new supply, new construction, new development, that does take time. It takes years for something uh, to, to, to get to the point where people are moving into their new home. That's why we also want to focus on acquisition. So losing the, lo- the loss of housing in the private market right now, how do we address that? That's something that we can do quickly and do uh, quite nimbly with support from the federal government.
3: Why, hasn't, how, why haven't you seen that support yet for that initiative in particular?
1: I think this government has been focused on new supply, and that's important. We need new supply, but we have to make sure we're not losing the affordable supply that we've already got. What it comes down to at the end of the day is is affordability. I don't think we should get caught in these kinds of trickle-down theories that eventually this new supply will become affordable 15, 20 years down the road. The folks who are living in tents right now, the folks who are one paycheck away from losing their homes, they need a guarantee of affordability now.
3: They also talked today, the federal government did, about mortgage relief protection for people. What did you think of what you heard on on that front? Because there are many people that are approaching a crisis situation who own homes as well.
1: Yeah, and this is important, right? The one thing that I know about the housing market is it is a single housing market, whether it is someone ejected from that market, living in a tent, someone in a rooming house, someone in a rental, someone who owns their home, including someone who might loan, you know, a very nice home somewhere. And what happens in one end of that market affects the other end. This, this lack of supply, this lack of affordable supplies, this housing insecurity that we're going through is leaving a lot of vulnerable people squeezed right out of the housing market and, you know, living in our parks and sidewalks and in small and large cities across the country.
3: You're saying it's all connected.
1: It's absolutely all connected. And this is why we need to take a systematic approach. You know, what we're seeing here is not a temporary crisis. What we're seeing here is a breakdown and failure of a housing system. So we need to work together, to come up with a systematic approach. We've been calling for, you know, a national summit uh, on, on housing affordability. And, and seriously, you know, take us ourselves, the nonprofit sector, private industry, researchers, provinces and tell them, lock us in a hotel for a week and don't let us out until we come up with a solution because I know the solutions are out there. We just have to connect them all together and come up with a plan.
3: At the same time, you know, it, it, these these are times that, that require fiscal restraint. Some politicians will tell you and experts as well. Some have called this an anxious budget. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh called it a micro budget. When there are fiscal restraints and those kinds of realities as well, what does that signal to you when, when people are describing this, this the way this way?
1: Look, the lack of affordable housing is a bottleneck on our economy. You know, so the economy is not going to improve unless we tackle this affordability problem. can came out with the latest inflation statistic today. Inflation is down, but the thing that's keeping it higher is housing costs. So we can't address the economic problem without addressing housing affordability problem. And that is going to take some investment.
3: Do you feel you're at a different place now? Do you think the message is getting through to politicians about how, how dire the housing situation is.
1: I think it is. I think it is. You know, when we look at this fall economic statement, and look, it's not like a full budget, and there's a lot of work to do between now and budget 2024 in the spring. But in terms of cost to government, the single biggest commitment is that $1 billion fund for for new community housing. So I think the message is getting through. I do think the solutions are there and I think there's going to have to be more to come and continued bold action over the next couple months.
3: Ray, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
4: Ray Sullivan is the Executive Director of the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association. He's in Vancouver. Another hospital in Gaza has become a war zone. Yesterday, at least 12 people were killed in a strike on the Indonesian hospital in the northern part of the Strip. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry said the Israeli military was behind the attack. The Israeli military issued a statement saying that its forces came under fire from within the hospital, and they targeted the source of the fire. But the statement also said, quote, no shells were fired toward the hospital, unquote. Today, medics are trying to get wounded people out of the building. Many of them are being sent to Nasser Hospital in the southern Gaza Strip. Tarek Al Dagma is a pediatric ICU doctor at that hospital. That is where we reached him earlier today. And a warning this interview contains disturbing details.
3: Dr. Al Dagma, you've been receiving many of the patients that were at the Indonesian hospital. So after that hospital was hit, people are coming to you for help. Just tell us about those patients. What kinds of injuries are you treating? <laughs>
6: Unfortunate for them and for us too, we were overwhelmed with the patients. Our ICU, which I am supervising, is eight beds ICU, already having uh, troubles, having shortage of uh, supplies and beds, of course. Our ICU is intended for pediatrics, medical causes only, not uh, traumatology or surgical or uh, multiple casualties. But we were obliged to do this work since we have no other options.
3: So adults so are coming in we and they're going into the pediatric, the limited pediatric yes, space you have.
6: Yes, yes. And uh, we need a multidisciplinary team to overlook these patients. What happened like uh, yesterday that we have uh, two patients that need monitoring and need ICU care and may they may have really them percentage of surviving but we have we had to let them go really Mm -hmm. because we thought uh, maybe we have much more hope with the other patients it's very difficult for me as a human being as a doctor to do this but we have no other choice just an hour before just an hour maybe if you're watching the news uh, In Khan Yunis, uh, there was uh, many bombardments around us. We received uh, more than 20 martyrs and uh, childrens.
3: I wanted to ask you about that because it's just coming across the wires here. Obviously, you know sooner what's what's happening, and and there are reports of a, of a strike, potentially an Israeli strike on a residential apartment building in Han Yunus. And you're yes. saying you've you've received just more than twenty people.
6: So we, we were looking to for patients that we can do anything for them really, but they you know we we have uh, no fuel for the cars. People were bringing them on uh, what do you call it a cart carried by uh, donkeys and animals and horses. The ambulances brought uh, many children who already were uh, dead. So we looked for patients that we can, can be saved really, but they became very critical uh, conditions and we did uh, some resuscitation for uh, them in the emergency room and uh, unfortunately, we could not save any of these children. Mostly they came dead. They, they were found on the streets. Imagine that the, the bombing of their apartments, they flew from the windows and they found them on the streets.
3: We've also heard of doctors uh, losing, losing their lives. Have you lost any colleagues or friends?
6: I lost uh, three weeks in the beginning of the war. There was a doctor friend of mine. I don't know why they bombed his apartment he lost he he died along his whole family around eight of them. He was called uh, Aziz al farra He was a really good friend, a nice person, very charismatic personality and and the only surviving this. member of his family was a child called Hamza, around eleven years of old. So they brought him to our ICU but he had serious, serious injuries. They brought him in very bad condition, and then he ultimately died. I'm so sorry. this was really, really painful days for me. Maybe it's the best uh, thing that he would not live with this trauma and pain that he lost all of his families. And he won't have any anybody to look after him.
3: After everything you've described, Dr. Doctor- I wonder when you you look at the the news we're hearing that we may see more hostages released today. Does that give you hope that the fighting might end?
6: I think I am really not watching the TV all the time because I'm walking all the time, but yeah. everybody here is not ha- not really hopeful about these seas of fire. Because uh, as I understood, everybody's uh, saying that they now think uh, the idea of the Israeli army, that uh, they will come to the south of Gaza, and maybe our hospital will be their next target. Nobody's hopeful that uh, this war is going to stop here.
3: Why did you decide to stay in Gaza?
6: Because I'm, I'm the head of pediatric departments and I'm supervising ICU. I have an Egyptian nationality. I could have left a long time ago, I cannot leave uh, my physicians, my junior doctors. In this, uh, I'm I'm saying now with my uh, daughter in the hospital. I brought her here. I, I I was exposed to a bombardment. I don't know. Maybe my house uh, is demolished by now.
3: How old is so she? So I had to.
6: She's uh, 18 years old.
3: You're living at the hospital, essentially.
6: We are living now in the hospital. We have no other choice.
3: Doctor, I thank you for your time. Please stay safe.
6: Thank you. And uh, I hope you, you convey our message. We need your prayers. We need your help. We need everybody to know that uh, the Israeli army is not uh, targeting Hamas. They are making uh, genocidal massacres. We don't see anybody taking action against this. Any uh, Arab countries as well which is astonishing and surprising, really. Nobody in the world cares for us. We, I, I don't know, maybe they don't consider us, us, us as humans, or I don't know. We are not all like Hamas. We are uh, other humans. We are uh, different. Uh, I don't know. Maybe God help us.
4: Doctor, thank you.
6: You're welcome.
4: We reached Tara Kaltagma at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, Gaza. Here is what we know. This spring, someone walked out of Pearson Airport in Toronto with over $20 million in gold bars and $2 million in cash. Here is what we don't know. Anything else. So we don't know who the someone or someones was or were. We obviously don't know how they pulled it off. But that's not stopping people from pointing fingers. Specifically, the security services company Brinks, which has filed a lawsuit blaming Air Canada for allegedly allowing the cargo to fall into the hands of the thieves, In a new court filing, Air Canada has outlined its defense in the case. P.Y. Bourgeois is the president of P.Y. Public Safety Management and a former deputy commissioner of the RCMP. We first spoke with him about the heist in April. We reached him today in Ottawa.
3: P.Y., based on what you've seen so far, do you think Air Canada has a case?
7: (laughs) uh, Actually, everybody's pointing fingers at each other, but uh, Air Canada is claiming of course that they exercise due diligence with regards to the shipping of the cargo and so on and so forth and they're pointing towards Brinks saying that you know they failed to actually took the proper security protocol or features and uh, and therefore you know they're both uh, claiming that um, they're totally not responsible for this uh, heist
3: and one of the things Air Canada is is pointing to is it's saying Brinks chose for its own reasons to not take out insurance uh, on this big and, and, as we know, valuable shipment. Is that unusual for, for a company like Brink's to not take out insurance?
7: Well, that would be highly unusual in my opinion. Of course, I'm not a specialist with regards to these types of, uh, of cargoes, but both Brink and Air Canada should have exercised a little more due diligence with regards to the cargo and the way it was uh, it was processed. Brinks should have advised and should have taken up insurance uh, to ensure that the proper protocol were in place by Air Canada and to also, from Air Canada's standpoint, uh, the Montreal Convention uh, caps the carrier li- liability. So, hence mm-hmm. the reason where Air Canada is claiming that the damages sought by Brinks are excessive, and, and they are not responsible for for the extent of the damage that brings this claiming from Air Canada.
3: They're, they're saying they just have to pay a few thousand, not the millions. Correct,
7: a few thousand, as opposed to an excess of $20 million. And
3: since the last time we spoke, and we spoke right after the heist had happened, but since then, we've learned mm-hmm. some things from the legal filings here. So just break it down for our listeners once again, how exactly... Did these thieves convince Air Canada employees to hand over this this cargo with a waybill, which we now know was forged?
7: What's surprised me, and I'm still baffled about how easy it was for a total stranger to walk in with a fraudulent waybill, handed this to a Air Canada representative in the warehouse, and this individual actually walks out with uh, 400 kilos of gold plus money, and it's clearly uh, identified as such in the waybill. And uh, the, still the individual just simply walked out. So uh, Brink's claim here is that uh, there were serious omissions on the part of Air Canada, which regards to the appropriate physical security of the cargo. And then Air Canada on the other side saying that there's a, an omission by Brinks of the value declaration and supplementary shipping fees that uh, Brinks didn't pay. So therefore, they're both pointing the finger at each other. And of course, you have to bear in mind that all of these um, are, are, uh, haven't been proven in court.
3: Right, of course. But it comes down to that interaction, that forged waybill and that single person, as you said. But does that suggest to you that the simplicity of that, that actually behind that, there had to be a much more sophisticated operation?
7: And a much more sophisticated operation. You're absolutely correct. And also, um, the individual obviously walked in and fully well, what the protocol was in place and some, some of the gaps in that protocol and certainly leverage on this knowledge. So therefore, for the Peel Regional Investigators, I'm sure that they're going up and down the line as to who within their, uh, the Zurich office, for instance, of uh, Brinks and, and who along the way knew or hot to know that uh the the shipment was arriving on April 17th in early evening at the Toronto airport and where the shipment would be an hour later and um and of course uh, you have to bear in mind that human nature being what it is these individuals that were successful in um in in pulling the, this particular heist um they're of course, uh, it's they're of course in 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 possession of valuable goods. So then the question begs to be asked: Like, when you have over uh, four hundred kilos of uh, of uh, gold and it it stamps with numbers, how do you dispose of this? Mm-hmm. So that's the logistical part of it, and also all the uh, the money that was also uh, stolen. Um, what do you do with this money? And uh, so if, therefore, the investigators have to focus. Um, what upstream, who upstream had to know, and downstream, who would try to dispose of this and by which means. So I'm sure that they're casting their net uh, very wide just to ensure a successful conclusion. But um, time um, in this instance is on the investigator's side. Well, they even have after seven few, months, yeah? Correct, it's seven months. But on the other end, unless you're extremely lucky at the outset, Um, These types of investigations could take potentially years.
3: You would imagine, though, that someone or a team that was sophisticated enough to pull off the heist we've been talking about, that they might have a plan for after, no?
7: Oh, oh, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do have a plan. They did have a plan, uh, but then um, as uh, former investigators, I've often said that human nature Mm -hmm. um, sometimes uh, trump the (laughs) best-planned criminal offense. So sometimes human nature being what it is, someone might be careless, might talk a little too much. So again, investigators, I'm sure, are uh, turning all the potential leads in order to uh, ensure a successful conclusion. PY, thank you. Always my pleasure. Take good care.
3: You too.
4: PY Bourgeois is the president of PY Public Safety Management and a former deputy commissioner of the RCMP. We reached him in Ottawa. first glance, it looked like a win for residents of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's certainly how WestJet saw last week's announcement that the airline will soon begin flying direct from St. John's to London, England for as little as $393 one way. Everyone was exactly on the same page about what was needed. And, and perhaps also importantly is that this investment be a sustainable and durable one. We have had ups and downs here. It's no secret. And this one has to work and everyone has to be in it to, to succeed, and I think you saw that today. WestJet's Andy Gibbons announcing that Newfoundlanders will soon be able to fly direct to Gatwick and claiming, as you just heard, that everyone is on the same page about that being a good news story. But everyone, apparently, does not include many Labradorians. Jordan Brown is an NDP member of the Newfoundland and Labrador House of Assembly for Labrador West. He says his constituents can pay up to $1,800 for a round-trip airfare just within their own province we reached Mr. Brown in Labrador West.
3: Jordan, what are your constituents telling you about how they feel about this announcement?
2: Uh, They feel that they're left out. They feel like that they're ignored. Uh, They feel like that, you know, they're giving up uh, a lot um, with these high prices because they just can't afford to travel within our own province. And we're finding it, you know, very difficult that our province is not trying to reduce the cost of traveling Mm -hmm. traveling within the province, but we're spending a lot of time with external flights uh, for people to go on vacation,
3: we'll dig into that to that part of your criticism in, in just a moment. But in terms of the the personal impact, can you illustrate one example that people have shared?
2: Well, um, I've heard people who miss funerals because they just couldn't afford to travel uh, within the province to get to the funeral. Uh, I heard from you know uh, people in competitive sport saying that they're being left out in this province because the cost of travel within this province doesn't avail for people to come and compete in sport. Uh, you know, there was one more um, public case uh, from criticism from uh, a famous curler saying that, you know, the cost of travel to Labrador to compete in curling was just so expensive that, you know, they, a lot of competition has stopped in Labrador because of the cost of travel.
3: So when Premier Fury, uh, you know, says, as he's told our CBC News colleagues in the coverage about this, that, that bringing back this direct flight is all about, you know, potential in people and industries, bringing money to the province and, quote, an explosion of potential for our people and our industries. Could it not be good for your province?
2: It's a possibility. It could be good. But when your own people in your own province can't travel and do the same thing within our own province and people are cutting out traveling and not doing as much or even just foregoing, you know, um, stuff that like you know funerals or going to graduations or things like that, people are cutting that out you're also cutting off the same industry. You're still, people are not spending money to move around the, in, internally within our own province. So, you know, uh, you can have people come in, sure, but when your own people are suffering and not being able to enjoy the rest of the province, I think that's more of a bigger concern. And we're not looking at our own people first, and that's what's disappointing.
3: And the other issue that that uh, is here that people have taken issue with is, is that there's provincial money involved here. Premier Fury says the government's contribution, it's about 3.75 million dollars that that went directly to the airport authority there and that the airport authority will spend it how it sees fit and we haven't seen any details of the agreement between the airport authority and WestJet here so how do you know for sure that taxpayer dollars are in fact subsidizing that WestJet direct flight
2: you know and that's it you know they they gave the money to the uh, to the to the airport authority uh, to spend as it see fit. Uh, clearly, they had to spend some of it to get to encourage WestJet to come back. So we'll see as, you know, hopefully the details will come out on what uh, what exactly is being spent and what's been given directly to WestJet. But at the same time, uh, we have seen no effort to bring down costs within our own province.
3: What's your message to, to people, though, who love this idea uh, and that you know, they, they've been longing for cheaper, convenient travel to Europe and to to the U.K. in particular, to Gatwick. What's your message to them, to those who are celebrating this?
2: Well, great. You know, you, you can get to go on vacation. Uh, you know, government gave uh, money to uh, the airport authority to bring less jet back. That's fine. But I have people in Labrador and the rest of the province who are canceling, uh, you know, trips. I have people in Labrador who are foregoing funerals. I have people who are trying to compete in sports who can't get out. I have competitions and stuff that can't come back to Labrador anymore because the cost of travel has gotten so expensive. So it's great that on one hand, but on the other hand, there's a lot of people that actually live and work in this mm-hmm. province who are not getting the same benefits.
3: You, you voiced these, these concerns, uh, I'm sure before now as well. What should be done in your view?
2: Uh, What I've done is I think it's time for the province to actually have a a conversation and answer the question. Why is it costing so much money? Why is it the price so high to travel within our own province, but yet you can turn around and have these cheaper flights to Europe? Where is the issue and how can we address it? And it's time for government to actually have these conversations with the airlines.
3: What have they told you in response? Have you spoken to the airlines or the government?
2: Uh, in the past, the airline just say it's cost of doing business, but you know, I, I think it's time to actually have open it up and have a real big, serious conversation on where is this price? Why is it so high? Because uh, I look at my airport here in Air uh, in Labrador West, and it's uh, it's extraordinary business. You know, uh, uh, four flights a day uh, from St. John's into my airport on Q four hundreds, and you can't you, you got to tell me that you know it's a busy airport and why is people being charged so much to travel?
3: Is your suggestion that that the province should be spending money to subsidize these flights as well?
2: I wouldn't say to start with the subsidization. Mm-hmm. I first want to say to answer the question. The government needs to ask the, uh, these airlines the question, why are you charging this price? What is the rationale for it?
3: Why do you think it hasn't been addressed so far?
2: Uh, I, I honestly, uh, I think that uh, there's just no will. There's no political will from this government to actually uh, to do something about, uh, about the cost of flying internally. I think they get more focused on uh, external,
3: just you know, personally for you, how many times a month are you flying back and forth between Labrador West and St. John's?
2: I can travel anywhere between uh, three to four times a month.
3: And how much does that end up costing?
2: Uh, it, it could be anywhere, um, you know, uh, uh, almost up to uh, three, three and a half grand um, uh, around uh, a month. And in, taxpayers in subsidize areas. that, right? Well, I am. Uh, yeah, yeah, my my uh, is part of my office. Yes.
3: Yeah. Just to illustrate. How much is being spent there? What's your sense of things? Um, you know, you're clearly out talking about this. Do you think that there's room for a shift? Do you do you sense that?
2: I, I think so. Like my, um, I've had people make comment about the prices daily to me. Um, you know, especially if they see me in the airport themselves, mm-hmm. uh, they come up to me and say, "Jordan, why is it so expensive to fly here? You know, what, why? Like, uh, we can't find the rationale. You know, the airport's busy. That's, you know, there's four flights a day to St. John's. You know, uh, why are they charging us so much money uh, to fly out of here?
3: Jordan Brown, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.
4: Jordan Brown is an NDP member of the Newfoundland and Labrador House of Assembly for Labrador West. That's where we reached him. Shipworms have a branding problem. First of all, they're not actually worms at all, but a marine creature called a bivalve mollusk, like an oyster or a mussel. Second, shipworms are known throughout the world as pests because they bore through ships, piers, docks, and any other wood that's immersed in seawater. And third, they are super gross. But shipworms also have a lot going for them, starting with the fact that they're very nutritious. And a team of British researchers wants to capitalize on that. They've developed the world's first system of farming shipworms. And to make eating them seem less disgusting, they've also come up with a new name for them. The researchers published a report in the journal Sustainable Agriculture yesterday. David Wheeler is the lead author and the Henslow Research Fellow at Cambridge University's Department of Zoology. We reached him in Cambridge.
3: David, tell our listeners what you and your team think these creatures should be called.
8: Well, we think they should called naked clams, quite frankly, because we're dealing with something which looks pretty unappealing uh, and has been regarded as a marine pest in the past. It was responsible for stranding Columbus in the Caribbean uh, and changing the course of history. Mm -hmm. So if we're gonna try and get people to eat it as a sustainable and nutrient-packed food full of B12 and protein, Mm -hmm. it does need to have a positive image, uh, which is why we have gone for naked clams. uh, And it's not the first time this has happened in food food systems. Some of your listeners may have heard of Fusarium being nice an fungi, and many of them will eat it on a regular basis in the form of corn. So there are, <laughs> there are several examples where actually a name change is really important for yeah. bringing a food to a market.
3: And, and why did you land on, I'm sure this was workshopped for a while, why did you and the team land on naked clams?
8: Well, so the thing about a, a, a naked clam is that it is a type of clam which is nearly but not quite lost its shell. Uh, and so they've become nearly shellless, a bit like nearly headless Nick and Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- th- what they have instead is they have this, you know, the, the wooden burrow they burrowed into to protect themselves. But when you're moving from the burrow, they're naked. So we have our naked clam. Seems
3: obvious. Yes. You talked about some of the things that, that uh, fascinates you about them, makes them so special and why you think that, that they needed this rebrand so people see them in a different way and, and eat them. So just tell our listeners a little bit more about what makes them so interesting and useful.
8: I think the, the really interesting thing about these is that compared to other bio bulbs, they grow much more rapidly. We're looking at an order of magnitude, more rapid growth. You know a regular mussel will take two or three years to reach market size whereas your naked clam can reach say 30 centimeters in six months so it's a much faster way of producing protein um it's also quite unique because there are there are very few organisms which actually have the ability to turn wood into food or, or wood into protein uh we all know that there is a lot of coal in the ground there is a lot of coal in the ground because there was that huge period of millions and millions of years in history We had massive rainforests, and nothing would eat the wood, so it got buried, and coal was formed. Um, What we have here is one of the few animals which has the the metabolic machinery, uh, the biochemical machinery in its gut, to break down wood, and that is unique uh, as a way of actually turning another part of a circular economy into food. Yeah,
3: it's it's the the name is one thing, but you mentioned the the photographs. they they might not help you at the outset, right people I'm sure are a little bit creeped out when they see what, yeah, you know, I, I the think few the, pictures there, are out there, there.
8: there is a, there is a bit of an issue here I mean yeah. they have an image they, they do they do have an image problem um <laughs> it's it's not as bad as it seems so yeah. actually a lot of the if you google chipworm on Google images, a lot of the images you actually pull up are species which are not the species we're working with interesting which are much less attractive um the the species we're working with is a white colour, like a clam. No real features, no funny brown appendages. Um, it looks a bit like a sort of a white snake or a white worm. So yeah. it's much more kind of plain, I guess, is one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but I appreciate it still. It could be an image problem, but uh, but but imagine it much more on the level of it's more like a squid or or a squid ring, right? Than some disgusting insect from. I think yeah, years maybe
3: ago. maybe um, now that the name is out there, you guys need some pictures of it them cooked, maybe, and presented. Oh on yeah, a plate. I mean, the, that might that, help. that, that
8: that's coming. We're, that that's yeah. coming. Yeah, we've got we've got a we've got a pipeline of plans. No, okay, that's in the way.
3: this is just step one. Unveil the name.
8: This is this this is step one. This is step
3: one. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, certainly edible insects are are protein rich, environmentally sustainable as well, um, but they they've been a hard sell in some parts of the world. I've eaten crickets before. I was good. It was crunchy texture is a big thing. Um, still not convinced about the naked clams, though. I do like other bivalves, so. Um, i might try you know everything you should try once and we should say people around the world in the philippines for example they eat, na- eat naked clams raw or battered and fried in thailand people eat them in curries and stews so i could get behind that but what about you do you have a, pre- a preference how do you take your clams naked clams
8: i think uh, i always like to cook my shellfish so yeah. you know really really simple uh in a pile it's quite nice um of course, yeah, calamari is great too. So, okay. they'd be my preferences. I'm not a fan for raw shellfish, so that's okay. a personal preference.
3: You like it in a paella? Do what is the? I've heard they taste like oysters, texture-wise. What do they compare to? Is it is it is it like a calamari or a squid?
8: They they they, they taste like a clam. Yeah, texture-wise, they yeah. are they are a clam. Yeah, they're a clam by species and a clam by taste and texture.
3: Okay, and I've heard that the type of wood. They've been hanging out in, affects the taste as well. True story.
8: True story. True story. Yeah. So if you're looking at, um, you know, shipworm fed or a naked clam fed on Scots pine, that will taste very different to one fed on mahogany or one mm-hmm. fed on, on a you know, on a spruce or something. So it really depends on, on the food source. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And we should mention you you and your team have come up with a way to extract them from the wood.
8: Yeah, so this is something I'm afraid we can't really go into too much detail on because it is very much under wraps. But we have a method of rapidly getting those clams out of the wood so that they're easy to prepare for food.
3: How long did you how long did you work on that before you said? "Oh, uh, you did it. It, it,
8: it, it, It's taken a bit of optimization, but we've got something which worked very efficiently now. Yeah.
3: You gave the pitch earlier about what makes them so useful uh, and powerful. Have you been discussing this with, with farmers? And what's what kind of response are you getting?
8: So, so there is a lot of interest, both from um, farmers in the context of agriculture uh, and farmers in the context of terrestrial farming, looking to make use of waste streams uh, and make, make kind of circular economies out of things. Uh, and I guess for us, the key thing is who we go with, because um, there is a lot of interest. So that's something we're very carefully considering at the moment.
3: David, thank you.
8: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking today.
4: David Willer is the Henslow Research Fellow at Cambridge University's Department of Zoology. He's also the lead author of a new report on shipworms, soon to be much better known as naked clams, as a new eco-friendly seafood. He's in Cambridge. A couple of months ago, you may have felt the first hint of optimism about food prices in a long time. That was when Canada's grocery chain giants promised the government they would roll out plans to stabilize prices. Now, Sobeys, Loblaw, and Walmart have indeed announced discounts. But the thing is, they're coming just when we would expect annual holiday price freezes. Saibel Ray is the academic director at the Bensadoon School of Retail Management at McGill University. We reached him in Montreal.
3: Saibal, we've heard of price freezes during during the holidays from grocers before. How
5: is what we're hearing now different? It is actually not different at all from before because it is their usual business practice for quite some time. The only thing which is different this year is they are uh, enlarging the group of products on which the price freeze they are applying. So only the Uh, there is a a larger number of products on which they are doing the price freeze. But the the exact phenomenon of price freeze is not something new.
3: So is this just theatre then, or meaningful change that will actually help people when they
5: need it so much? It will help because they are extending the, uh, the number of products, but it is not what, people some people might think that oh they are doing a price freeze on in a lot of different products it is not a new initiative in that sense they are increasing by 10 15% uh, so that's good for the pro uh, people, But they have been doing it for quite some time during November and December for quite some time.
3: And, you know, when when the government has been talking about this, the federal government and and the grocery chains promise to lower food prices. And the federal government says that's what it's working for, to, to get some action and some help for Canadians when they go to, to the supermarket. Is this what the government had in mind?
5: Uh, this is not the, what the government had in mind. So we want to see what happens in January, February. Because this one government was I mean, like, even if government was not doing, uh, maybe the number of products would have been a bit less, but they would have done a price freeze during mm-hmm. November and December. Uh, so we want to see what will happen in January, February to see wh- what the government originally had in mind, whether it is working with uh, uh, grocery stores or not.
3: Yeah, we we were promised that, that we would get more details of what they agreed to. But a lot of time has passed, as you know, and we haven't
5: received those details. Why do you think that is? i am hoping that there is some discussion about what is the long-term uh, uh, long-term solution at least for the basic products uh, i am not telling all grocery products mm-hmm. but at least for the basic products what is the long-term solution especially since it seems at least uh, throughout the world the uh, many of the many of the problems that was the culprit behind the price increases are starting to uh, come down uh, the transportation costs are come down mm-hmm. unless there is something big in Middle East maybe the oil prices are also stabilizing so transportation cost is less raw material cost or throughout the world in many countries including us uh, the the inflation is going down so we are hoping that at least in Canada uh, at least from the basic food prices we will uh, see a long term at least stabilization in the prices, even if not a decrease.
3: What would you need to hear from the grocery chains to believe that there's meaningful change, meaningful help for Canadians?
5: Uh, it would be great if we hear that at least for certain basic products uh, uh, that we are uh, we will have some price freeze or very limited price increase for the next six months. Something like that stability would be very helpful. Yes.
3: So people can can plan accordingly yes, and plan budget accordingly, it, and we yes, should mention exactly. the freeze that the Empire freeze we're talking about. Uh, it, it is on packaged goods. Yes, more yes. packaged goods than than in previous years. Exactly. But we're not talking about produce and other yes. basics.
5: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and that is what we would like to see. That is there a commitment from the grocery stores what they can do?
3: We know that that. That so people are paying very close attention to the profits that these these yeah. large companies are making. We know that last week, Loblaw reported profit growth <clears> in their third quarter. So w- when you look at those numbers, how do you weigh all of that? What do you make of it?
5: Yeah, so the thing is that uh, obviously the, 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 the profit margin has started to go down slightly. But the only thing I would once again make the case that it is, it is going down from a very high level. So if you compare the profit margin from 2019 or so, or early 2020, compared to that, the profit margin went up quite a bit during the COVID and just after the COVID. But we are seeing that in the last, let's say, six months or so, it is going down but uh, it is still uh, for for from a consumer perspective it is still quite high compared to uh, pre covid levels
3: is there an incentive or enough pressure in in your view for big grocery chains to make it to make change
5: uh, so this is a more of a structural problem that is that the competition is not very high in uh, canada as you know that there are only five main grocers uh, controlling eighty percent or plus uh, of the grocery market, so um, the incentive is not a lot at this moment, at least unless again, unless there is some pressure from the government. Uh, creating more uh, competition will not happen uh, overnight. It will it will take time uh, for more competition in that sense like people have been talking about more competition not only in grocery other sectors also mm-hmm. and that will not happen overnight uh, so the only thing is that if the government can um, control or work with the grocery chains to control some of the basic food prices
3: we're talking of course about the the fiscal statement today the update nothing yes. new so far that we're seeing uh, at this stage at least in terms of any new food price strategies from the federal government. So what specifically would you like to see from, from the government? We've talked about what we think the the grocery chain should say and do. What about the government specifically? Yeah. So
5: the government main thing is that yes, government can, uh, 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 government can obviously one of the things that the government have been doing is helping some of some parts of the society uh, with their grocery bills, but it cannot be a long-term solution. Uh, only so long the government can uh, do that, basically. And at certain point, the government will say that we cannot afford to do it anymore. So they have to see the long-term solution is increasing competition. That's the only way to reduce price. But in the short to medium term, they have to work with the The government has to put some pressure on the grocery stores to see what they can do in terms of controlling the prices for at least the basic goods. Again, not the all, but at least the basic goods. Saibo, thank you. Thank you very much.
4: Saibal Ray is the academic director at the Ben Sedun School of Retail Management at McGill University. We reached him in Montreal. As marketing campaigns go, Flightless Birds for Food Banks feels pretty high concept. Attention-grabbing, no question. But when you first hear it, it doesn't feel as grounded as the birds it mentions. It doesn't seem like it's necessarily going to win any awards. But in fact, the campaign has succeeded with flightless colors. Flightless Birds for Food Banks has earned the town of Tabor, Alberta, not one, not two, but three awards for excellence from the international organization the Association of Marketing and Communications Professionals. The campaign was designed to make donations to local food banks achieve liftoff by referring to some very big birds that cannot. Megan Brennan is the mastermind. She works in the communications department for the town of Tabor. We reached her there.
3: Megan, exactly one year ago this week, what was happening on the streets of Tabor?
0: (laughs) There was a bit of a flap going on in Tabor, for sure. (laughs) Um, Early uh, in that morning, a bunch of ostriches apparently took a run at a Ostriches. fence, knocked it down, and uh, escaped And unknowingly to a bunch of Taborites. We didn't know that we had uh, ostrich farms in the region. Now we're fully aware that we do. Um, unfortunately, the uh, farmer couldn't catch all of them, okay. so they uh, they decided to come to Tabor and uh, go down our ha- highways and okay. streets and all that. So it, uh, it caused uh, quite a commotion. The great,
3: the great ostrich escape of uh, 2022 in the town's (laughs) history forever. Did you see them in the streets yourself?
0: (laughs) No, luckily I was inside, so I didn't see them. In fact, uh, the first I found out about it, our CAO came to my office and said, have you heard about the ostriches? (laughs) And I thought he was joking. (laughs) Well, sure. Until I turned on the news and realized that, no, we were in a live game of Jumanji. (laughs) (laughs) Truly,
3: it's not uh, an embellishment at all. So then you have to go into you know, crisis mode, I guess, at that Mm -hmm. point. So what do you do as soon as you realize this is not a joke? It's very real.
0: (laughs) Well, luckily, by the time that I had seen it, most of them had been rounded up. I think there were only a handful that were left.
3: How did they manage to do that?
0: uh well the uh luckily the police um from the Tabor police service and the RCMP were working alongside the farmer mm. and they were working to capture them uh wrangle them however you want to word that basically trying to capture these giant birds with as little damage to property and persons as possible so i can assure everybody that um that was not taught in any police academy around here <laughs>
3: and maybe not what you thought you the kind of comms crisis communications crisis you'd have to deal with but then you get this this idea you have this sort of light bulb moment to to help people out so tell us about how you came up with the idea
0: i i will admit that i had a really boilerplate boring um sort of statement to put on our um our channels that day just because it was it could have been a very very dangerous situation i mean these birds mm-hmm. are very dangerous But luckily, it it turned out very well, and as absurd as it was, and the videos were, I just thought the more and more that night, we need to meet absurd with equally absurd. So I thought about it all that entire night, and there had been a lot of struggle in our community with, you know, food banks, people having a hard time making ends meet, and that um, avian flu was quite uh, high in the news at that time last year, so there was a shortage of uh, turkeys in the area. So we just kind of decided to um, you know, match synergies, buy some turkeys, donate them to the food bank and pull out all the bird puns we could and have a laugh at uh, you know, Tabor's expense um, with those ostriches.
3: So you bought every turkey you could find in town and there were about 20, I think, you donated them, mm-hmm. but, but then you also issued a challenge, right, to residents?
0: Yes. Yes. So we knew we had thousands, hundreds of thousands of eyes internationally on our community so we decided okay let's capitalize on this and we issued a challenge to people that okay you can laugh at us all that you want and please do it is really funny what happened but if you're going to laugh make sure you're laughing on the way to the food bank to donate and so we called it flightless birds for food banks
3: <laughs> the title is great also so <laughs> why do you think it, it it resonated so much with people in the end <laughs>
0: In all honesty, I think it's because of uh, the surprise that they um, they saw. It's not a statement that you would normally see on a government channel, especially for an event like that. I think people just assumed that we would say we're glad everybody was safe and here's what to do in the next giant bird escape and <laughs> tabor. But we decided that normal wasn't going to cut at this time. And so people were quite surprised and I think pleased by the fact that the government kind of took um, the by the feathers, if you will, and went funny. Oh, so many! <laughs> well, I'm glad you can you
3: can uh, bring them out on this on this occasion. So, how much help came in?
0: We don't actually know. We never tracked anything like that just for the privacy of the food banks. So mm-hmm. We don't have any concrete numbers, but just from the um, overwhelming response in uh, messages and phone calls and comments that we received from international borders all around the world, we sincerely hope that it did have some concrete impact for food banks everywhere.
3: And then you find out you're getting three awards for excellence mm-hmm. in marketing and communication. This is an international Uh, award that we're that we're talking about. So how do you think it will change how you approach your job and
0: communications? (laughs) It already has. We've started now implementing a little bit more humor and a lot more humanity, if you will. It kind of removes that barrier between our citizens and the people that serve them just through humor. It's as simple as that.
3: Megan, I appreciate your time. Congratulations.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time.
4: Megan Brennan is the Communications and Projects Coordinator for the Town of Tabor, Alberta. You could call it high-minded, or you might think of it as hello hanging fruit, but whatever your opinion, you can't just wave aside a new public campaign in Lulio, Sweden, which is encouraging residents to greet each other. Like, in public. I know. Swedish culture is famously reserved. Swedish people tend to keep to themselves, so random acts of salutation are not always well-received. Still, in a few weeks' time, Lulio will be down to just a few hours of sunlight each day. So, as the darkness descends, the northern city has launched the Say Hey campaign, urging locals to take the unprecedented step of saying hi to their fellow citizens. The city says even a small gesture of acknowledgement can help fight the loneliness and isolation that can be particularly acute in the long, cold, dark of winter. So, it has plastered Say Hey print ads around town, added a Say Hey page to its website, and is running workshops in schools. It has also created a kind of instructional video showing people what saying hi to each other might look like. I wanted to share it here now, but strangely it is a silent video. Maybe because the sight of people saying hello, combined with the sound of people saying hello, would be a system overload. What I can tell you is that in the video, every recipient of an unsolicited hello looks shocked and confused. And then pleased, which is good, but first, really shocked and confused. So the campaign organizers must all have agreed that baby steps are clearly the way to go. I guess greet minds think alike.